0: Let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 17 this morning. Uh, Before we read, I want us to uh, recall, though, God's power in the church that we've witnessed as we've been walking through the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus ascended to God's right hand, and from that place of authority, he poured out the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit empowers the church with, with bold witness, with deep unity, uh, with some really impressive generosity, with even an awareness of God's holy presence in His assembly. He even powers some to perform great signs and wonders to authenticate the good news of Jesus' kingdom. God's power in the church is something to pray for, something we should long for. We want God's power to impact us so much that it starts impacting those beyond us. But we've also seen that God's power in the church will not mean a more comfortable church. It will not mean a safer church. And it will not mean an easier life. Uh, what happened in chapters 3 to 4? Uh, Peter and John, they, the Lord uses them to heal a lame man. They preach the gospel and God's power goes on display and immediately they're jailed for it. The same will happen in today's passage when, when God empowers His people to do great things for God, opposition will come. Persecution will come, suffering will come, doing great things for God will lead to suffering. At the same time, we'll see today that the opposition cannot win. The power of God that provokes the world to persecute the church, that same power enables the church to persevere through the suffering so that the gospel continues to advance. The gospel will advance because God's purpose in the risen Christ to spread the gospel cannot fail. And that should encourage us to obey Jesus even when it is costly. So let's pick it up now in verse 17. We'll read to verse 32. I'll make some comments along the way. And then what I want to do is is draw out four lessons from this passage. Uh, God's power. uh, We saw last time... ...was impacting Jerusalem through the church. All kinds of Jews are leaving Judaism to follow Jesus... ...and the religious elite don't like it. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up... ...and all who were with him... ...that is the party of the Sadducees... ...and filled with jealousy... ...they arrested the apostles... ...and put them in the public prison... But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to, to teach. I'll stop there just for a minute. So God miraculously delivers the apostles. Now we shouldn't think that he always delivers ...this way, or, or that when he chooses to deliver, to deliver this way, it'll, it'll happen in the same way. When we get to chapter 12 in Acts, God delivers Peter from prison, but James gets killed in prison. At other times, Christians stay in prison until they die. The point isn't to say that God will always deliver Christians when they suffer... The point is that God is making a statement about who's really in control here. And it's not the Jewish authorities. God is in control. If He wants them out, He's going to get them out. The Jewish authorities are actually the laughing stock here. Look at verse 21. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council... All the Senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison, and so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors. but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. Wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. This is funny. Really funny. They, they go to the prison as if they're in control. We're going to show these apostles. Only to find there's nobody there. And they're confused. You know, wasn't everybody in place? George, you didn't stand your post. They're worried this can't be good. Then you get some average Joe that comes from the temple area. Hey, you know those guys you put in prison? Yeah, they're preaching back in the temple. Then they're all scared of what's going to happen. We don't want the people to stone us. They bring them quietly back. Verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned him, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, Peter basically replies. Look, you're guilty. The man you killed is king, and you don't have the Holy Spirit. We do. Wow, this is Peter, who just a couple of months before denied Jesus. But now the Spirit has made him bold to preach Christ. How easy it would have been just to skirt the issues. All right, all right, all right. Let's, let's just work out an agreement with he, here, guys. We don't have to teach in the temple anymore. We can do it privately. No, he just flat out says, we must obey God rather than men. We'll come back to that at the end. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee and the council named Gamaliel, the teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, "'Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing.' And after him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case I tell you keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles. You see the contrast there by the way. The apostles are the ones following God. And the Jewish leaders are just following man's counsel. They're afraid of the people, so they don't rest. Or they, don't, they bring him quietly back. Now Gamaliel stands up and pontificates, and they follow Gamaliel. They're not following God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would use your word to penetrate our hearts this morning. It is is always a good word. It is holy and pure and perfect and true. I use it to conform us further to the image of Christ. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, four lessons to take away from this passage. Number one, God is with the apostles, not the Jewish authorities. God is with the apostles and not... ...the Jewish authorities. This is part of Luke's apologetic... as he's writing the book of Acts. In verse 19, the Jewish authorities lock up the apostles... ...but God delivers them to preach. In verse 32, God gives the Holy Spirit to the apostles... ...because the apostles obey God... ...unlike the Jewish authorities... In verse 42, God gives the apostles strength to keep preaching Jesus despite the suffering they endure. So if I was a Jew in the first century and I pick up up the book of Acts to read it, it would become very obvious which, which Jews God was blessing, which movement God stood behind, which people God was supporting. He was blessing the Jews who had given their allegiance to Jesus Christ. So it has an evangelistic appeal in in this way. Don't follow the authorities God Himself has rejected. Follow the apostles who proclaim forgiveness in Jesus Christ. God isn't with the leaders telling you to follow Torah. He is with those telling you to follow Jesus. And that's just as relevant for today. God is not with leaders who refuse to preach the apostles' gospel. It doesn't matter how charismatic their personality is or how many numbers follow them or how many times they may even use the name Jesus. God is only with those who follow the Jesus as preached by the apostles. So we got to check things out. Go back to the Word. Lesson number two. Christianity succeeds... ...because of the risen Lord, not human revolt. Christianity succeeds because of the risen Lord, not human revolt. The political situation hadn't favored Israel over the years. So Israel, you know, witnesses lots of these little revolts... ...popping up here and there. Gamaliel reports two of them in verses 36 and 37. One is by this guy named Theodos... ...and another by Judas... So these guys claim to be somebody, they gain a little following, Rome or somebody else intervenes and their followers scatter and the whole thing just flops, comes to nothing. And so in this setting, if you're reading the book of Acts, and you know of all these little revolts cropping up here and there, and you read, is is Christianity just another one of these human revolts? Is Christianity just another one of these human uprisings that's just going to flop? Well, by including Gamaliel's counsel, Luke is contrasting Christianity with other human revolts. First, Gamaliel mentions that Theodos got a following of about 400 men. Not bad. But isn't it funny that Luke has already told us that 3,000 became Christians in one day in chapter 2, verse 41? And then the number of men alone came to about 5,000 in chapter 4, verse 4. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, you have multitudes of believers joining the Lord. And the rapid growth is such that even the Jewish authorities accuse the apostles of filling Jerusalem with their teaching. In other words, Gamaliel seriously underestimates the situation here. Uh, something else he underestimates. Theodos and Judas are both dead. Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead never to die again, and that, that might be a factor to consider more seriously here. Of course, the Jewish authorities don't want to believe that, but as readers of Acts, you're kind of snickering in the background. Doesn't he know Jesus is alive? We know the truth. Jesus won't ever die, nor can anyone thwart his kingdom. Even, as we've been reading, even the opposition to Jesus is already worked into God's sovereign plan to advance His kingdom. Isn't that what we saw in chapter 4, verse 28, where the rulers and the kings and the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel were gathered against the Lord's anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words... Truly, no opposition can stop the church. It's already included in God's plan to advance the gospel. Gamaliel also says that uh, when the followers of these other movements, when they were dispersed or, ca- or scattered, they, they came to nothing. And uh, this becomes funny later on because in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says that all the people, uh, all the Christians, get scattered because of the persecution. And what happens? It says that when they were scattered, they go about preaching the word. And people get saved in other villages. It doesn't come to nothing, in other words. Christianity isn't a fleeting revolt. It's not a human uprising. It's not a man-made attempt to overthrow the world's kingdoms. It's the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection Victory and His kingdom's advance will not stop until He gathers all His elect from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. It's the result of Jesus already overthrowing the ruler of this world. The decisive battle was fought and won at the cross. The church is the fruit of His victory. Don't melt into a puddle when the world takes prayer out of schools, so to speak, or Starbucks says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. My Bible says Jesus is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There's no reason to worry. We're talking about the risen king. Lesson number three. God isn't committed to... I mean, God is committed to spreading life through the gospel. God is committed to spreading life through the gospel. There's an intentional oscillation that you see in this passage... ...between persecution and preaching. The apostles are jailed, but an angel delivers them and tells them to preach... The apostles get re-arrested and questioned, but Peter preaches Christ to the authorities. The apostles get beaten, but they keep preaching in the temple and from house to house. The point being, whatever suffering the church faces, God will ensure that His gospel keeps advancing through His people. He will use heavenly authorities if He... Wants to for a prison break or he will use the folly of an earthly authority like Gamaliel to make sure that the people he wants saved hear the message. He even strengthens the church through suffering so they continue carrying on the message. This is something we've seen in the book of Jonah too. Ben's been taking us through Jonah Jonah runs the other way. God's got a message he wants Nineveh to hear. Jonah runs the other way. What does God do? I'm going to use a storm and a wind and a breaking up ship and sailors who don't know me to cast this guy in the sea. I'm going to appoint a fish and vomit him back up on the sea and say, you better get the message to Nineveh. This is a picture of God pursuing the people he wants to hear his message. And the same thing we're getting here. He has revealed his plan in chapter 1 verse 8 that the church would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and he is making that happen. And he is still making that happen today through you and me. What is this message though that he is spreading across the world? In verse 20 the angel calls it all the words of this life. life. Luke doesn't mean mere human existence. He means the eternal life bound up with knowing God through the risen Jesus who has conquered sin and death. This life is good news in a world cursed with death. We have a problem. We have a problem. In response to sin, God cursed humanity with death. The Bible tells us that sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and so this death spread to all men because all sinned. Physical death, people's bodies grow old and get buried because of sin, We're cursed with spiritual death. Death is more than something we meet at the end of life. Death is separation from life with God. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we, even though physically alive, were dead in trespasses and sins. We're also cursed with eternal death. The Apostle John portrays death as coming into judgment under God's wrath... Without escape forever. How does one escape this curse of death, death, death? Well, the answer is by hearing and believing all the words of this life. This life in Christ. And some of the words of this life we find on the lips of Peter down in verse 30 and 32. Verse 30 tells us that Jesus died as a cursed man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, it says, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Not a cross, though that would be perfectly accurate. He says a tree. This language is important, and it, and it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you want to go there, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse twenty-two and twenty-three. Sometimes when we read our Old Testament, reading the law, or here the second giving of the law, we wonder what are all these little commands about, and what do they have to do with my life? This one's got a whole lot to do with your life. Deuteronomy twenty-one, verse twenty-two. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." So there it is, a hanged man is cursed by God. By using this language from Deuteronomy, we learn what the Jews really thought about Jesus. At least these unbelieving Jews. He was no more than a criminal who deserved God's curse. According to their own law. They even treat him that way. This is why they come and tell the... Soldiers, get the bodies off the cross. Great day, Sabbath is coming. Get them off the cross. We don't want to defile the land with these criminals. So they thought he is no more than a criminal who deserved God's curse. The truth, however, that we see here coming out as Peter's talking is that God exalted Jesus, which means God has a different opinion about Jesus, doesn't he? He raised Jesus from the dead and He made Jesus king, which means Jesus did not deserve God's curse. If God exalted Jesus, He proved that the world's opinion about Jesus as a cursed man was wrong. Jesus was in the right, the world was in the wrong. But there's another element here we cannot miss. It wasn't simply that the Jewish authorities killed Jesus as a cursed criminal. Jesus chose to die as a cursed criminal... ...and by so doing, he took away our curse of death, death, death. If you want to go to Galatians 3 with me, you can. Paul uses this same passage from Deuteronomy... Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says that those who, who fail to keep God's law are under God's curse. So sinners, who's a sinner in this room? I didn't see too many hands. Good night. are you know, like sanctified people. <laughs> sinners deserve the curse of death, death, death. But then, Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's another it's a quotation from Deuteronomy. So let's put these texts together. The one who didn't deserve God's curse became a curse ...in our place. That's why Jesus died. He endured the curse of death, death, death... ...that hung over us to save us. That's why Peter goes on to say in verse 32 of his little sermonette here... ...that Jesus rose to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus can forgive our sins because He already bore the penalty for our sins... So if you reject that message, then you remain under death, death, death. But if you believe that message, well, God gives you life, life, life. You get the hope of resurrection, reconciliation to God and an eternity in His blissful presence. And even before that day comes, when when we see God face to face, Peter says... In verse 32, that He also gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. What does the Holy Spirit do according to John's Gospel? He gives life. He gives life. Eternal life, which is to know God. So God is committed to spread this message of life to the world. If God is committed to spreading this message of life to the world, then what should we give our lives to? We should spend and be spent to get this life to others who are drowning in death. Does it concern you that people are truly perishing? Have we forgotten how awful that death really is before we knew Jesus? Can you see the world sinking in the sea of death while we somehow got snatched up and put on this rescue boat called life? Owing nothing to ourselves. What does God want me to do with my life? It's a question we often ask ourselves. Isn't it? Make this life known to others. That's what he wants you to do. Really clear in the Bible. We don't have to wonder what his will is for our lives. It's right here. At home, at work, at the park, at the hospital bed, at funerals, at parties, at graduation. Celebrated Corbin's yesterday. On the streets, in the store, over coffee, in a letter, on the phone, on Facebook, write a book, get creative, just do something and find ways to get the message out. God gave us the words of this life to rescue people from death. It's got to go to the ends of the earth, to all peoples. Jesus gave his life to ransom people from every tribe, tongue and nation and they shall reign upon the earth. If they're going to reign in life, they've got to hear the message of life. God is committed to getting them that message. So ask him to use you and be ready to speak. I know we have limitations on what we can do. But sometimes we limit ourselves by what we want to do. Let's want to get this message out. Lesson number four, obedience to Jesus is costly but leads to great joy. Obedience to Jesus is costly, but it leads to great joy. In verse 29, the apostles say, We must obey God rather than men. And similarly, there's an emphasis in verse 32 on obedience. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. Spreading the gospel is a matter of obeying God. Men are telling them to keep quiet about Jesus. In verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. But the apostles refused to obey the authorities in order to obey God. And that's one thing we have to keep in mind as Christians. That governing authority is never an absolute authority. Absolute authority only belongs to Jesus Christ. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, they they teach us that the Christians should be subject to governing authorities... And that even we should honor those who are in places of authority. But if those authorities demand that we live in ways contrary to Christ, we must disobey them in order to follow Christ. If any superior, I don't care if it's in the home or in the church or at the workplace or in court, If any superior demands that we affirm what Jesus would deny or deny what Jesus would affirm, we're not obligated to obey them. We must disobey them in order to obey Christ. This is getting closer to home. Uh, A few months ago I had a friend that worked for a major helicopter manufacturer in the area. He handed a fellow employee a book that he thought would help him with his depression. The book was written from a biblical perspective. That employee reported him to HR... ...who then asked him to sign a statement that he would no longer impose... ...his religious beliefs on fellow employees. These things will become more common... When we obey Jesus in spreading the gospel, the world will attempt to silence us. The Jewish authorities attempted to silence the apostles. They used threats. Verse 21. They used public humiliation. Uh, in verse 18. Sorry, that was Acts 4.21 where they used the threats. Public humiliation in verse 18. So they put him in public prison. They want them shamed in public And they used physical abuse in verse 40. Verse 40 says the authorities beat them. Daryl Bach says that the whipping would have been on the back and chest with a three-stranded strap of calf hide, and this would leave one close to death from loss of blood. All this to deter them from speaking about Jesus Jesus said this would happen to them. But the occasion wasn't a matter of silencing the gospel. It was actually their opportunity to be witnesses. This is what Jesus teaches in Mark 13, verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And what's the divine purpose in all of this? He says, to bear witness before them. To bear witness before them. Obedience to Jesus is costly. It will cost us our lives. But is He not worthy to represent? Is it not the highest privilege to be counted His messenger? Here's where a real challenge comes in for some of us, especially in the the West, and especially in America. Because we read these stories in Acts and they force us to question whether the lack of persecution in our lives is because we look too much like the world. Is the world not persecuting us because they find no need to silence us? What reason does Satan have to silence those who never speak? For Christ. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not suggesting that all Christians will experience the same degree of persecution. We won't. Peter and John. Peter, J- Jesus had to clarify that for Peter and John in John 21. It also seems that God restrains... Severe forms of persecution in some parts of the world more than others at various times. The question isn't, why are we not experiencing the same amount or the same kind of persecution others may be? You also shouldn't leave with a false sense of guilt for not experiencing persecution. Yet, many of you are being very faithful to the Lord. You are speaking for Him. And your day of persecution hasn't yet come. I'm also not suggesting that you leave and go out and actively pursue persecution. We pursue love and obedience to Christ, even when that love and obedience may bring persecution. But we don't pursue the persecution itself, as if that's what really matters. Having said that, we can still ask whether the world finds no need to persecute us because we're too silent about Jesus already. Does the world not persecute us because we share the same passions and goals as the world anyway? The sufferings of these apostles, for Christ's sake, really force us to evaluate what's most precious to us. Is Jesus most precious truly? Or is it our own lives, our own agendas, our own plans, our own sports teams, our own degrees, our own families even? Do we share the Apostle's passion in Acts 20, verse 24? This is Paul's passion. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only. That's a language of treasuring right there. I will give everything if only. That's how we talk when we treasure something. Isn't it? Anything. But I want us to ask the question, is that treasure if I could only Is it Jesus? He was that treasure for the apostles. Jesus' name was so precious to them that suffering for His name became reason to rejoice. You see this in chapter 5, verse 41. It says that they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. the name you can't do that on your own you've got to have the Holy Spirit I want to take you just one place in 1st Peter 4 real quick 1st Peter 4 very similar type of text where he says, uh, this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Ah, let's start in verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ." You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There it is. This is how they're rejoicing in the midst of persecution. With bleeding backs, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon them. So you can't do this on your own. Verse 41 says, they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I have to say how far removed I can be from this kind of heart disposition. I can grumble about the slightest things that inconvenience me, and they can have absolutely nothing to do with speaking for Jesus. Nothing. You spilled the milk on the counter. Again. Again. Nothing to do with Jesus or suffering for righteousness' sake. And I'm grumbling. These guys just had their flesh ripped off their back. And they go out rejoicing. Rejoicing that Jesus counted them well suited to suffer dishonor for His name. They look at their sufferings for Jesus and it signals something to them... Grace made us who were unworthy, worthy to suffer for Christ. More than anything else, the apostles' joy was rooted in their solidarity with Jesus and his sufferings. They found more joy in being Christ's messengers than in anything else in life. Jesus' name was so precious to them. He was that treasure in the field. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told? The kingdom of heaven is, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then he covered it up. And then he went and he sold everything he had. Why? To buy the field. Not to have the field. To have the treasure that was in the field. The apostles are willing to lose all they have. Comfortable days, reputation, jobs the flesh off their backs, if they can just have the treasure and share that treasure with others. It is the highest privilege to be counted among the King of Heaven's servants. Oh, that we would find Jesus to be such a treasure in our own lives. When Jesus is treasured within, we will speak. ...of His glory to others. When Jesus is treasured within... ...we will obey God at all costs. He is risen. He is glorious. He saved us. He's everything. He's not just a priority in life. He's everything. That's ultimately what the Apostle's suffering... ...is showing us here. Jesus is... Everything. He's more valuable than anything that this world can offer. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, let's consider once again the treasure that Jesus is. We're going to sing in a minute. We're going to sing together a song called, The Lord is My Salvation. And while we're doing so, I want you just to consider how precious his death really is for us. Let us once again be amazed that unworthy as we are, he has counted us worthy to sit at his table. Not because of anything in us, but because of everything he has given to us. To serve in his kingdom and to spread his message of life to others. And then let's also pray that when suffering comes as a result of our obedience to God, that we too might be able to rejoice in Jesus. Let's sing. Together.